Happy New Year's 2024. With the start of a new year, so many of us have goals. We have resolutions. We have dreams. There are things that we want to accomplish in 2024. Because when we look back at where we were one year ago at this time, and we compare the, the lengths that we've gone through in the past year, we see how far we've come, how much we've accomplished. And we know that we want to build on that in the year ahead. And yet, when we set New Year's goals, we often do so with the assumption that everything is going well, that we're healthy, that we're happy, that we're safe, that our families are doing well. And based on that assumption, based on starting from a baseline of things are good, we often then want to improve and see if we can level up, see if we can become better than before. What happens when things are not good? What happens when we are dealing with grief, with loss, with illness, with injury? How do we develop resilience so that we can continue to achieve our goals, to improve our lives, to become better versions of ourselves? How can we do that even in the face of turmoil and tragedy? Today's guest, Hal Elrod, has specific actionable tactics that can help us through this. Welcome to the Afford Anything podcast, the show that understands you can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else. And that doesn't just apply to your money, that applies to your time, your focus, your energy, your attention, to any limited resource that you need to manage. And that opens up two questions. First, what matters most? And second, how do you make decisions accordingly? Answering these two questions is a lifetime practice, and that's what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I am the host of the Afford Anything podcast, and today's guest, Hal Elrod, has endured his fair share of hardships. He has lived through the death of a sibling. He lost his little sister when he was very young, when they were both young. He, later in life, was in a car accident that left him with 11 broken bones and that actually left him technically uh, dead for a, for a little while, for a short while. Uh, when he awoke from that car accident, the doctors told him that he may never walk again, that he might have to spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. He got through that in part highly motivated by the thought of not wanting his parents to have to lose a second child. And after that, he endured very, very severe financial distress during the Great Recession. He'll describe all of that in this upcoming interview, which is going to start in a couple of minutes. Now, in order to develop resilience and continue pushing through, despite everything that was happening, he developed a morning routine that he dubbed the Miracle Morning. And that morning routine, which he shared in a book that he published in 2012, became wildly popular. It became a huge international bestseller and also even became the subject of a documentary, uh, which is also called The Miracle Morning. You can find it on Prime Video. As he was shooting that documentary, he was diagnosed with leukemia. Hal Elrod has had to, in times of injury, in times of illness, in times of grief, has had to develop specific, tactical, actionable practices 
that give him the fortitude to continue moving forward. And he shares those with us in this upcoming interview. So I hope that you enjoy it. And I hope that from this interview, you take away specific actionable information that can help you as you try to pursue your goals, your vision, your resolutions for this new year. Hi, Hal. Hola, it is so good to see you. It is amazing to see you too. Uh, I want to jump right in. There are four major inflection points in your life, one of which had you doubling your income during the Great Recession. And that inflection point happened when you were 29. I want to get to that story. But, you know, these four major inflection points, they happened when you were age eight, age 20, age 29, and age 37. And each of these points has absolutely fundamentally changed the trajectory of your life and created lessons that uh, that everyone listening can benefit from. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us about what happened when you were eight. Yeah, I I woke up on one Saturday morning uh, to the sound of my mother screaming from her bedroom. And she was saying, oh, my baby, my baby. And at first I thought she was playing with my baby sister as I was like groggy waking up. And then I sensed the, like the terror in her voice. And so I ran across the hall and she was performing mouth to mouth resuscitation on my 18 month old sister, uh, Amory. And so again, Amory was just a baby and she had been breastfeeding her and her eyes just glossed over while she was breastfeeding her. And I called 911. I ran to the neighbor, uh, you know, did everything that my little eight-year-old abilities could do. And um, that morning she, she passed away. You know, it was devastating for our family, of course. Um, it was me, uh, my mom and dad, and then I had another sister who was just a year and a half younger than me. What I learned, though, is I watched my parents take this tragedy, and they went through their grieving process, of course. But within about six to 12 months, my mother was leading a support group for other parents who had lost children. So she had turned her pain into purpose and was serving, you know, and and helping other people with what she had gone through. And of course, there was some healing in that for her. Um, My dad, within roughly the same time period, he started a fundraiser uh, for Valley Children's Hospital, which was the hospital that cared for my sister and attempted to save her life. Uh, and, And so me and my other sister that was still living, we we raised money for this hospital every single year for the next, I think, 10 plus years and raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for the hospital. So I didn't know it at that time at eight years old. I didn't know how to process what happened. It was all, you know, very confusing for me and, and, and dealing with death at such a young age. But what seed was planted for my parents is um, that when you experience tragedy in your life, when you experience adversity, that if you can find a way to help other people get through their adversity, there is power in that. There is healing in that. And and then as we go into these other inflection points, I realized not at the time, but looking back that, oh, that seed that was planted from my parents, that lesson that I learned watching how they helped other people would set the really set the tone for how I what I did with every future adversity that that I've ever faced. Wow. Let's Stay on this one a little bit because it's difficult to imagine at the age of eight and your other sister was six, Yeah, right? She was a year and a half younger. Did you 
fully understand what death was? Here's what I know. Um, Mm -hmm. And this came from a therapist actually a few years ago doing some unpacking of my childhood and her asking me a lot of questions. And uh, what happened the morning, that morning, I had Mm -hmm. called 911 and then I called my dad. He was working at a grocery store and he he rushed home and my mom and dad uh, went in the ambulance with my sister and then our neighbor friend, uh, my friend uh, who I was went to church with school with his mom took me. My, they just figured I didn't need to be at the hospital. My parents figured it would be better to be over there. And so at that, I thought that Amory was going to be fine because I thought, oh, she's in the ambulance. That's what ambulances do. They are going to save her. It's going to be fine. And about two hours later, my dad called and my friend's mom gave me the phone. And uh, he, he first time I heard my dad cry, I think he said, Amory's in heaven. And, uh, Again, at eight years old, I don't, I don't think I fully could comprehend death and, and what that meant. All I know is what I said, and not to my dad, but when I walked out back into the living room to greet my friend and his mom, Janine, I got really upbeat, and I said, hey, guys, guess where Amory is? And I can remember Janine's face. I remember her like looking sad and furrowing her brow like because i think she knew already and i said she's in heaven isn't that great and so it's another thing if i look at how i've responded to my adversities through that it was in that moment i both developed a superpower and also the shadow side that every superpower has the superpower was oh whenever i face adversity if i find the silver lining if i find the positive focus on the positive I don't have to suffer. But this shadow of that is I didn't develop my emotions fully as I grew up. I never, ever fully allowed myself to experience painful emotions until I much later in life, which is where the therapist came in and unpacking all of this and understanding where at eight years old, I formed this way of responding to challenges by just focusing on the positive and it alleviated the confusing emotions that an eight-year-old was trying to understand and reconcile like how am i supposed to feel about this i don't i don't i'm never going to see my sister again I, what i don't understand you know so yeah so again it was it really though helped me in you know to deal with the the other stories that we're going to we're going to share the other challenges that i faced in a really positive proactive way and then that also helped me do what my mom and dad did which is like oh because i'm able to move through these challenges in this positive way I can now use my knowledge, my superpower, my experience to serve other people and, and help them with this. How did your other sister respond? Did she also Oh, that's a great that question. I honestly don't remember. Um, and I would imagine at six years old that she was probably sad, but yeah, I don't remember. Um, I, I do know that she's far more in touch with her, <laughs> the full range of emotions, you know, throughout her lifetime than I was. It took me until I went through my my cancer journey, which we'll talk about, um, to actually get in touch with the pain that I had kind of suppressed for most of my life. Does your mom still run that support group? She doesn't, but she helps people. In fact, she's in the other room right now. She's visiting us. Um, and uh, I just had my friend, he's a filmmaker. He made the Miracle Morning movie, the documentary. I just hired him to make a mini documentary about my mom. And I just saw the first cut of it yesterday. But um, she is... Basically, it's the she's the definition of one person can make a change, and she donates blood every week. She sits with people 
uh, that are dying in hospice. Um, she volunteers. Um, yeah, she is the epitome of someone living in alignment with her values and, and helping as many people as she can. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And I'm glad she's in the other room. I'm glad she's visiting. <laughs> she's probably listening. Um, <laughs> tell us then, let's fast forward from the age of eight to the age of 20. Yeah. You're 12 years older at this point and yeah. you're an adult now. You're a young adult. What happened? So I was a sales rep for Cutco Cutlery. I had, I had started a career a year and a half prior at age 19, and I had quickly become one of the top sales reps in the history of the company, um, and which was for me a, a departure from a very mediocre childhood. I was like, I never got good grades. I wasn't an athlete. I, was, I never really was exceptional at anything. I had really found my niche and I just, cause I was just enthusiastic and I was like, wow, this product's amazing. Check this out. And, um, a year and a half into my career, I was giving a speech at a conference and that night driving home in my Ford Mustang, my first new car that I had bought three weeks prior, uh, a drunk driver got on the freeway going the wrong direction, 80 miles an hour headed straight at my car. And I don't remember seeing the headlights coming at me. I don't know what I thought, um, or if I even comprehended what was happening, but I was hit, my car was hit head on by a drunk driver at 80 miles an hour. And then the, the worst was yet to come. My car spun off the drunk driver and the car behind me T-boned me. It crashed into my driver's side door at 70 miles per hour. And the left side of my body was absolutely destroyed. I broke 11 bones instantaneously. My leg broke in half, my arm broke in half. I shattered my elbow. I severed the nerve in my forearm. I almost completely lost my left ear. My eye socket was destroyed and the ceiling buckled and it sliced a V in the top of my head. Um, it took the paramedics and the fire department almost an hour from the, the time of the crash to use the jaws of life and cut the roof off. And when they did, I bled to death and I, my heart stopped beating. Uh, I stopped breathing. I was clinically dead at the scene of the accident, and they rushed me onto a medevac helicopter, pumped blood back into my body, used the defibrillators to shock me back to life, gave me oxygen, and I was clinically dead for approximately six minutes. And then, thank God, they didn't give up because they revived me. And I was airlifted to the hospital. I spent six days in a coma. I flatlined twice more, so I was in very critical condition. And when I came out of the coma six days later, I was told that I had permanent brain damage and that I would never walk again. And so at 20 years old, to be told you're never going to walk again, and uh, not to mention I had no short-term memory. I mean, my poor parents had to keep retelling the story of what happened to me because, you know, I would fall asleep, wake up and go, where am I? Why am I? What's happening? Why am I all bandaged up? Why am I hooked up to this, these monitors? About a week after the crash and processing what happened, I implemented something, believe it or not, that I had learned in my Cutco sales training, and it's called the five-minute rule. And it simply states that when something goes wrong, it's okay to be negative. It's okay to feel sorry for yourself, but there's no sense in dwelling on something that you can't go back in time and change for an extended period of time, and doing so only creates suffering. In fact, I wouldn't have been able to articulate at the time, but later I realized that Every painful emotion, and if you're listening, please tune into what we're talking right now, this five-minute rule. This is really valuable, and what I'm about to say. Every painful emotion that we have ever experienced is self-created by our resistance to our reality. 
In other words, it's the degree that we wish or want something were different that is out of our control, past, present, or future, that, d- that creates the emotional pain, right? If you go, no, why is there traffic? I wish there wasn't traffic. I can't be late. I need to be. You're creating the emotional pain, and you think it's the traffic. You think, well, I'm upset because there's traffic. You go, well, wait. The guy next to us in his car is running just as late as you. He has the same negative consequence when he arrives there that you do but he's totally at peace. How is that possible? It's because he's not resisting reality. He's completely at peace and accepted the fact that I can't change that there's traffic. So I might as well be at peace with it so that I can enjoy this one life I've been blessed to live. Six days after the coma, I went, I can't change that I was hit by a drunk driver, that I broke 11 bones, that I have permanent brain damage, and that I might spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair but I can choose to be the happiest and the most grateful I've ever been while I endure the most difficult time in my life. And and I'm here to share with you the two are not mutually exclusive. We've been conditioned to think we feel good only when good things happen, but we feel bad when bad things happen. And we're not really in control of how we feel. And what I realized in that moment is no, we get to choose how we experience every moment of our life including the most difficult ones. And I'll put a bow on this story by saying a week after this mindset of me deciding I'm at peace with what I can't change, but I decided I'm going to maintain faith that I might be able to walk again. Who knows? I'm going to pray that I can walk again. I'm going to visualize walking again. I'm going to meditate in that state of being fully healed while I'm at peace with it. It may not work, but I'm at least going to give it a shot. And a week later, the doctors came in with routine x-rays and they said, we don't know how to explain this, Hal, but your body is healing so quickly that we're going to let you take your first step today in therapy. And that day I took my first step three weeks after, you know, I broke all those bones. I took my first step and, you know, the rest is kind of history, as, as they say. It's one thing to understand what you've just said at a cognitive level, mm. right? Everything that you've just said intellectually, I get it intellectually, I agree. But how were you able to feel it? A week before I took my first step. So back up in time a week. Okay. So I've been out of the coma for about a week and I don't know if I'm ever going to walk again. The doctors called my parents in for an update and they said, we want to give you an update on how physically he is stable now and he should be with us for a long time. Because at that point they just wanted me to live. Right. They didn't care if I was in a wheelchair. I mean, that was secondary for them. It was like, we just want our son alive. I mean, my poor parents had already lost a child. Yeah. The doctor said, physically, he's stable, but mentally and emotionally, we're concerned that Hal is in denial or he is delusional because he's always happy and smiling and telling jokes to make us laugh. And they said, that's not normal. And they, they said, we want you to go talk to him and find out how he's really feeling. So my dad came into the hospital room. I didn't know what this conversation was about. And he said, Hal, the doctors are a little concerned. Um, They said, it's not normal that you're so positive right now. They said, you should feel sad, scared, angry, or depressed, or all of the above. They said, that's normal. And they believe that you can't handle your reality, so you've just checked out, and you're just in la-la land pretending everything's okay. And I don't know if he said this, but essentially it was that eventually I was going to have to face reality, and if I didn't do it, in a safe environment in the hospital with the therapist, I might turn to drugs, alcohol, suicide, or right some other escape from my reality. And 
my dad said, Hal, how are you really feeling? It's okay to feel sad, scared, angry, and depressed. And I went inside and I really sat with it. Am I sad? Am I scared? Am I angry? Am I depressed? And I looked at my dad and I smiled and I said, dad, I thought you knew me better than that. He said, what do you mean? I said, remember, I live my life by the five minute rule. He said, remind me of what that is again. I said, oh my gosh, I've told you this so many times. You'd be so much happier if you would listen to me and just apply this. But I said, it's okay to be negative, but not for more than five minutes. And in my Cutco training, I was literally taught to set my timer for five minutes when something happened and, and give myself five minutes to fully feel it. And if you're listening to this, this is how, literally try this out today. Try it out for the next 30 days. Set your timer for five minutes and go, oh, I'm so mad. I'm so this, I'm so that. Fully feel your emotions. Don't suppress them. Don't deny them. Don't deflect. Fully feel your emotions. And I had done this for a year and a half. And Paula, I'm going to share what a lot of people are probably thinking. It's what I thought when I first learned this. Dude, you got to be kidding me. I'm not going to get over something in five minutes just because I set a timer and it goes off. If I'm upset, I'm upset. And the first time I used this, it was like two days into my sales career. I had driven like 45 minutes to this appointment and she left a note on the door saying, we don't want any of your knives. Don't call back. I'm 19 years old. I'm trying to reach these goals. Like it was, that was really upsetting for me. Right? So I set my timer for five minutes as soon as I get back in the car. And I'm like, I can't believe she did that. How rude. She could have called me. She had my number and I'm stewing over it. And the timer goes off after five minutes and I'm still upset. And I go, I hit the snooze button, snooze. I go, I go, I'm going to, I'm still upset. Just as I thought five minutes is not enough time to get over something. And, but Here's something. So I felt validated, but the most profound thing happened within about a week or two of doing this five minute strategy. And by the way, I've shared this with tens of thousands of people. I've received thousands of emails. If you try this the way I'm describing it, you will, it will change your life. So within about a week or two, I remember it was Sunday morning. Uh, I woke up, I was trying to hit my goal for the week and I was $2,000 away and orders were due the next morning. This was my last chance. And the odds of selling $2,000 in a day, not very good. Like that, that's a big day, right? The biggest set we sold was $750. So I'd have to sell three of them on two appointments. Not very good odds. Mm-hmm. Go to the first appointment, but I'm like, I'm going to try. I'm going for it. I'm positive. Go to the first appointment. She doesn't buy anything. And now I'm like, huh, okay. Set my timer for five minutes, you know, but I'm like, how am I going to sell $2,000 on one appointment? That's nearly impossible. I go to the last appointment. The woman buys three sets, one for her, one for their vacation home and one for her mom. And I hit my goal and I'm on cloud nine and I call my manager, my mentor that taught me the five minute rule, Jesse. And I said, Jesse, I just sold $2,300. I hit my goal for the week. I'm so excited. He said, Hal, not only did you hit your goal, that makes you the number one rep in the entire office for the week. You are number one. We're going to recognize you. You're going to get an award at the meeting on Wednesday, on and on. And again, for an insecure kid that never accomplished anything amazing in his life, I'm calling my mom and dad. I'm celebrating. I am so excited. That night at 9.03 p.m., my phone rings, and it's the woman, and she cancels her order, saying her husband came home, and he got really upset that she bought all the knives. Now, again, at 19, I just had like the high point of my life and it was just taken away and I'm devastated. And I set my timer for five minutes 
Oh, okay. What am I going to do? I can't believe she canceled her order. Oh, she would have loved the knives. I can't believe she did that. What am I going to do? And all of a sudden I start to answer the question. I go, well, all I can do is accept this. I can't change it. All I can do is accept it and wake up tomorrow morning, make calls and just try to make up for it this week. And all of a sudden I start to like, I'm resolving this thing I can't change. And I pick up my phone and I have four minutes and 32 seconds left. And I go, wait a minute. What's the point of dwelling on something for the next four and a half minutes and being upset over it when I can't change it and being upset doesn't change it. It doesn't do anything. It's just causing myself to suffer. Why not just say those three words? Can't change it. Now, release the attachment, the resistance, and just be at peace with it and go watch TV and enjoy the evening. And so that's exactly what I did. And so my answer to your question of, yeah, you might get it intellectually, but how do you actually do it in real time when you're facing those emotions and that adversity? You start practicing the five-minute rule now. And you might need 10 or 15 or 20 minutes. You might have to snooze that five minutes multiple times. But every time you do, you are elevating your consciousness to a place of awareness that goes, oh, I'm in control of my emotions. If I could get over them in 20 minutes, I could probably get over them in 15 and maybe even in 10 and then in five, right? And then you just start to realize that you are, we are in control of our emotional state. And so after I did that for a year and a half, that prepared me for this extraordinary adversity and the mindset that went, I can't change that I was in this horrific car accident. And if I'm in a wheelchair the rest of my life, I'll be the happiest, most grateful person that anyone's ever seen in a wheelchair because I'm in a wheelchair either way. And I will not let the unchangeable aspects of my life determine the one thing that I get to choose, which is my attitude and how I feel about things. Wow. So what I'm hearing is, is practice. Yeah, that's it. Practice. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Practice the behavior and eventually the, the feelings catch up with the behavior. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just tell this real quick. I had a woman, I gave a speech about this and uh, she emailed me a couple weeks after the speech and she was 27 years old at the time. And she said, Hal, I saw you speak a couple weeks ago. And when you started saying that every painful emotion we ever experienced is self-created, she said, I got really angry because my dad committed suicide when I was 17 years old. And I've spent the last 17 years depressed over my dad's suicide. And I felt like you were telling me it was my fault that I was depressed. She said, but I got that little can't change it wristband. I don't have these anymore, but I used to give out these can't change it wristbands uh, when I spoke at colleges, you know, probably 15 years ago. And she said, I wore it. And every time I started to feel sad about my dad's death, which was just habitual, I would look at it and go, oh yeah, I can't change it. Maybe I can be at peace with it. She said, the last 10 days is the first time in 10 years that I learned to be at peace with my dad's death. And yesterday I got a permanent tattoo and she sent me a picture of it, of the words, can't change it as an acknowledgement that I will never allow myself to feel emotional pain over my dad's death or anything else I can't change. And she said, I've decided to replace those old, horrible feelings of depression and sadness and anger and with gratitude. Now, when I look at my wrist, can't change it. I decide to be grateful for my dad's life, 
that I was his daughter, that nothing will ever change that. And I realized that if this woman could go from being depressed over her dad's suicide for 10 years to being completely at peace with it in, in, you know, in a week or two, then you and I, we can apply the same philosophy, the same mindset, the same five minute rule and can't change its strategy to the challenges that we face that have maybe caused us to be upset up until this point, but now we can move beyond that. And it starts one five minute timer at a time. That must be surreal to see someone get a tattoo of something you've said. Yeah, I've got a folder on my computer now. I think I have 17 can't change it tattoo pictures in that folder, which is wild. All right. So what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design. They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You, know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly, but you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search, it's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. 
That's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I didn't know how to optimize what was in my wallet. So I didn't know how to optimize how to use travel rewards to pay for vacations. But now I've got a new card with more miles and I'm getting business class upgrades. I'm getting lounge access. I'm getting all kinds of perks that I didn't even know that I was missing out on. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. How long did it take the full recovery? How long did it take until you were walking? So unbelievably, I mean, they told me I'd be in the hospital for a, probably six months to a year. And they said I would, of course, never walk again. I took my first step three weeks after the night of the accident. And then four weeks later, I went home with a walker. Um, so I left the hospital seven weeks after the night of the crash. And, um, and I actually went back to Cutco and then I got back to work against doctor's orders. I just, something inside me wanted to get back to work. Um, and I was standing on stage two weeks after I got out of the hospital as the number, I think six rep out of a thousand reps at the conference for a, a two week sales competition after I got out of the hospital. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's drive. That's drive, which actually is a perfect lead in to what happened when you were 29, because at the age of 29, yeah. you doubled your income and you did so in the middle of the Great Recession. Tell us that story. So, uh, yeah, it didn't. It, it sounds glamorous, but the way it started was the, the recession began creeping as, as it's happening now. Right. And I was kind of in denial of of I had never been through a recession. And my business was on the upswing. I, I was a business coach. I was coaching salespeople and financial advisors and entrepreneurs. I had hit Hall of Fame with the Cutco company about a year and a half prior. And so I left. I wanted to start my own business. And my business was, was on the upswing. Uh, I think I had grown from zero to $80,000 um, my second year. And so things are going great. I had bought my first house. I was engaged to be married. Like life was the best it had ever been. And all of a sudden I start losing clients because the recession impacted my clients and they're going, Hey, my business is slow. I can't afford coaching. And I go, oh, okay. And then I lose one after another, after another. And in a six month period, it was this downward spiral where I lost over half of my coaching clients, therefore half of my income. I could not pay my bills. I started living on credit cards. I went from being a Dave Ramsey debt-free, you know, paid the credit cards off every month uh, person to within six months, I had $52,000 in personal credit card debt from zero to 52,000. So about eight grand a month or so. And I couldn't pay my mortgage. So my house was foreclosed on by the bank. So I'm, 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 I'm figuring out what, where I'm going to live, ended up moving back in with my dad. And I got really depressed for the first time in my life because I applied, can't change it in the five minute rule, but I had never applied it to a, a declining, worsening circumstance where it got worse and worse. Like when I came out of the accident, it was like, okay, that's the low point. 
Now I have to go up and improve and heal and grow. But in 2008, it was like, wait, is this the low point? Oh, no, it's not. I lost two more clients this week. Wait, is this the can't change it? Is this the low point? And I was not mentally or emotionally equipped to handle that. I didn't know how to handle that. Episodic versus chronic. Yeah, yeah. Great way to frame it. Exactly. I called a friend for advice. I hadn't told anybody. I was just, I was suffering in silence. I finally reached out to my friend, John, and I say, John, I am financially distraught. I don't know what to do. It's getting worse. It's been getting worse for six months. What? Give me some advice. And he said, I want you to listen to this Jim Rohn audio. I said, is it on how to make more money? He said, no, <laughs> it's on how to become the person that you need to be to change any aspect of your life. I go, I was hoping for a quick fix to my financial issues, but okay, I'll listen to this audio. So I listened to this Jim Rohn audio and a single quote, and I'm going to ask everybody, I'm going to encourage you to write this down if you can, or timestamp it and come back to write it down. But this quote changed my life. It was the catalyst that changed my life faster than I ever thought possible. In fact, I give Jim like half the credit because the Miracle Morning was born out of this philosophy. Jim Rohn said, your level of success, and I apply this to every area of life, your financial success, your health, your relationships, your mental health, you name it. So your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I quantified it immediately for whatever reason, just automatically I went, okay, what level of success do I want on a scale of one to 10? Well, level 10, I think that's human nature is we want to be as happy and healthy and wealthy and in love as we possibly can. Everybody, there's this innate desire and drive toward level 10, the best life can be. The next question was, well, if my level of success is, is not going to exceed my level of personal development, I got to ask myself, what's my level of personal development? As in, what am I doing every day to become the level 10 version of myself that is capable of creating and sustaining the level 10 success I want in my life? And the answer to that question was, I'm at like a two or a three. I'm doing very little every day to become the level 10 version of myself. In fact, I'm sleeping until the last possible minute. I'm depressed. I hate waking up every morning. I'm going into a stressful environment. My work is stressful. My finances are stressful. My relationship is stressful because I'm a mess. I'm not the person that my fiance first started dating. Like I'm a mess at this point. And so the epiphany or the, or the thought was, I need to go figure out what I'm going to get online. I'm going to figure out what are the world's most successful people do for their personal development. I'm going to combine the best personal development practices to create the ultimate personal development ritual. And theoretically, if I start doing that every day, that should enable me to become, go from being at a two or a three to a level four, five, Six, like to get better and better every day. And as I get better, I should become more capable of turning my financial situation around. This was the theory. And I was looking for one or two practices, Paula. And I went home and I Googled. I had been on a run listening to the audio. And I just Googled, what do the world's most successful people do for personal development? And things like, what do millionaires do and billionaires do? And what do wealthy people do? I was trying to figure out, like, you know, attack it from different angles. And I was looking for one or two practices, but after about 30 to 60 minutes, I ended up with a list of six. These are the six most timeless, 
proven personal development practices that the world's most successful people have sworn by for centuries. And two challenges I faced. Number one is I'm like, none of these are new. Like meditation, affirmations, visualization, reading, journaling, exercising, like these aren't new. And we've been conditioned to think we need new. It's got to be something cutting edge, never before seen. So I started to almost dismiss them. Then the next challenge I faced was, which is the best? Like, I can't do all of them. Which is the best? And I almost threw in the towel. And then thank God, and I really do believe this was a God thing. I got this moment of clarity where I went, okay, wait a minute. Rather than dismiss these because I've heard of them, how about I consider that the world's most successful people attribute their success to one or more of these practices, and I'm not doing any of them consistently. That's first. Number two, rather than pick one or two, what if I did all of them? What if I woke up tomorrow an hour earlier, even though I was not a morning person, I just determined I'm so busy during the day. And if I were to do these first thing in the morning, it would get me off to a peak start where my, my mental, my physical, my emotional, my spiritual capacities, I could start at a peak level every morning. So I'd be better throughout the day. And I thought that would be the ultimate personal development ritual. And so that night I Googled how to meditate because I really didn't know how to meditate. I Googled how to do affirmations because those felt really cheesy to me. Like, how am I going to affirm? I'm amazing. I'm a, I'm wealthy. I'm right. So I Googled these practices and here's a really important piece for people. If you're in a position right now where you're struggling and maybe you were like me where the only escape from problems you have is your bed at night. I think, I don't know if you've been there before, but that was me where every day I just counted down the hours before I could hug my pillow and feel like I was safe for the next, for six or seven, eight hours. And then I woke up and I just struggled through my day again. But that night, I wasn't going to bed in that state. I felt excited for the morning. I felt like a kid on Christmas Eve where I was like, wait, this could be it. When I do this every day, like I don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I think I'm going to feel a heck of a lot different than I do now. The next morning when the alarm went off, I didn't even hit the snooze button. I jumped out of bed. I ran into the living room and I, I, and I was, I didn't know how to do these well, but I looked at my tab on my computer. Okay. How do I meditate? And I sat there and I meditated and my mind was racing and I'm like, I suck at this, but I still felt centered and calm. And I was like, okay, that's a really nice way to start the day. Then I pulled out some affirmations that I read. And then I went through the, I went through all six practices. And by the way, let me give a quick framing for people. These are known as the savers. This is the acronym for these six practices. S-A-V-E-R-S. That's silence, prayer, and or meditation. A is for affirmations. V is for visualization. E is for exercise. R is for reading. And the final S is for scribing, which is a fancy word for writing or journaling. As Robert Kiyosaki said, Hal, before you wrote The Miracle Morning, every successful person on the planet swears by at least one of the savers. He said, but I had never heard of anyone that did all six of these ancient best practices. One of them will change your life. But he said, six of them creates miracles. He said, you name the book correctly. And so after I did this practice for two months, I more than doubled my income. 
And we can, we can unpack how I did that specifically, because I think there's certainly value in that, especially with this recession. Um, I went from being in the worst shape of my life to committing to train for a 52 mile ultra marathon because I hated running. And I thought, what better way to grow and evolve than to commit to do something that is so far outside of my comfort zone that I have to become a different version of myself to be able to do it. And last but not least, and maybe most importantly, my mental health did not take two months to improve. It improved on the very first day because I went from feeling hopeless to feeling that if I do this every day, if I start every day with these six practices and start the day with this much energy and clarity and motivation, it's only a matter of time before I become the person I need to be to turn my life around. And two months later, it worked. And I told my wife, it felt like a miracle. And she goes, that routine is your little miracle morning. I go, yeah, miracle morning. I like that. And then, you know, eventually it became a book and so on and so forth. Home is where you go to relax, to recover from the day, to get ready for the next day. And you want it to feel nice, but you don't want to spend a lot of money. You need something that's in budget, something affordable, but also something that fits your style and taste. Wayfair has you covered. They have everything from appliances to furniture to art to rugs for your living room, your bedroom, your deck or patio. I have shelves from them that are hanging in my bathroom right now that they look really nice, but they're also super functional for storage. I have a daybed from them that's in my living room. Again, very functional, multi-purpose. You can get items from Wayfair for your own home. You can do it for a rental property. They have a massive, massive selection. So regardless of what your taste is, they've got a huge variety of styles and it's very budget friendly. You'll find pieces that look good, that fit your style at a great price. And they have fast and free shipping even on the big stuff. Every style is welcome in the Waberhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com. Wayfair. Every style, every home. You know, spring is a good time for new beginnings. It's a great time for spring cleaning, for planning outdoor activities, and for going through your financial life to make sure that everything is in place that you need. Everything that you need is in place. And the thing about life insurance is that Shopping for life insurance can be part of your financial planning for the year. And Policy Genius is there to help with that. Policy Genius has licensed award-winning agents and technology. What does that mean? It means you can, in just a few clicks, compare quotes from top insurers. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not for the insurance companies. They don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another. And they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. You've described how in the morning you go through a series of practices that center you. It centers you mentally, it centers you spiritually, it centers you physically. How then did you approach this chronic problem of losing your clients in the middle of a recession and needing to to turn your fortunes literally around? 
Yes. The first thing was mindset. And this was what, where my affirmations really helped. I affirmed that the economy is not in control of my financial situation. I am in control of my financial situation. That's a huge, that might seem simple. You could almost overlook it, but that paradigm shift is monumental. It is consequential to take 100% responsibility for your financial situation. Because if you say it's the economy, again, you have no control over the economy. You only have control over what you do. So that's the first piece is that mindset shift and, and going from, you know, blaming to complete responsibility. The second thing I did is I went on amazon.com and I looked for a book that would give me strategies to get more clients. And the book I landed on is by Michael Port. It's called Book Yourself Solid. It's for service-based businesses that want to get more clients. So I thought, I'm not going to make this up on my own. I'm going to take a proven system and I'm going to implement that. So I ordered that book and that gave me strategies to ask for referrals, different ways to scale my business, to go from one-on-one -on -one coaching to group coaching, all sorts of different, different strategies. Um, and then there was a way that I sequenced these savers, these six practices known as the savers. I sequenced them. So Every morning I would start with silence. I would meditate and I would do so to lower my cortisol levels, right? There's over 1400 scientific studies that show the physical, mental, emotional, and even spiritual benefits of meditation. But you lower your stress levels so that you can think clearly, so that you can gain insights that you don't get when your mind's racing and you're stressed out and you're in this fight or flight mode. Like most of our best Ideas come when we're in the shower, when we're falling asleep at night, when we're, our mind is resting. And so intentionally starting your day with peaceful, purposeful silence, whether it is prayer or meditation, for me, it's a combination of both. That is an optimal way to allow yourself to gain the clarity that you need to move forward and to put yourself in an optimal mental and emotional state. In the new Miracle Morning updated and expanded edition, I teach something I call emotional optimization meditation, which isn't in the original book, but it's something that I do now where I identify what's the optimal emotional state that I need to be in that would serve me today and what I need to get done and what I need to accomplish. And then I meditate in that state. So I create those new neural pathways and kind of hardwire that, if you will. Then I use my affirmations. I mentioned one of them, but I went beyond that and I followed three steps to create affirmations. Number one, what are you committed to? That's number one. Affirm what you're committed to, right? In life, you don't get what you want. Oh, I want to make more money. I want to get out of debt. No, I'm committed to generating X amount of dollars, increasing my revenue by this month, right? Get very specific on what you're committed to. Step two, why is it a must for you? For me, it was a must for my wife. We were, she was pregnant. It was our unborn child, um, right? So I was really clear. I had meaningful reasons that compelled me to do whatever it took. And then number three, which specific actions will you take and when? So that formula, I affirmed what I was committed to, why it was a must for me, and which specific actions I was going to take and when. And that could be as general as I'm committed to reading this book and then scheduling 60 minutes a day to implement what I'm learning. Think how simple that is. If you want to improve your marriage, there's a book for that. You want to be happier, there's a book for that. 
whatever you want to do, there's a book for that. But you also need to optimize your mental and emotional well-being and create space and reinforce your level of commitment in order to follow through. So all of these savers support each other. And the last one is visualization. I won't go into all of these. We don't have time. But the last one is scribing. At the end of my miracle morning, I pull out my journal and I write down a few things. Number one, what am I grateful for? I want to really put myself in a state of gratitude for my life. That helps me realize that there's a million things I could be stressed about, but I'm going to put myself in a state of gratitude. Number two, what's my top priority today? So I look at my to-do list and I ask myself, what is my top priority today? Because the to-do list might have 15 things on it. It often does. But I ask myself, what's the one that like in that case in 2008, what's the number one thing that is going to move the needle in, in terms of my income, in terms of growing my business and getting more clients? Um, and then number three is, is there anything that I need to be at peace with before I enter my day? So is there anything I'm holding on to, any stress, any conflict from yesterday, any fears for the future? And by writing it down and getting it out of your head, it allows you to transcend that stressful state. So that's an example of how all of the savers, we didn't cover exercise and visualization, but you get the idea. You use all six of them and focus them like a laser toward whatever your most important outcome or outcomes are in your life. And again, within two months of doing that and following what I was learning in the book and optimizing my state every day and taking action, that's how I doubled my income in 2008. And so just to recap really quickly, so SAVERS, S-A-V-E-R-S, the uh, morning routine that you implemented is silence, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, and scribing, which is just a fancy word for writing. Yeah, but the J or W would have made the acronym weird, right? Saverja or Saverwa. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so, so, so thank you, Thesaurus, for that one. <laughs> and then in terms of what you are scribing or writing, uh, it's three things. What are you grateful for? What's your top priority for the day? And what do you need to be at peace with in yes. order to start your day? Yep. We, uh, we only have a few minutes left. I want to get to the fourth inflection point in your life. We've talked about the, you know, major events in your life that happened at the age of eight, at the age of 20, and then at the age of 29, when you, uh, when your home was foreclosed on and you lost all of your clients during the great recession while your wife was pregnant, right? Take us then to age 37, the fourth and most recent major inflection point. Yeah, just when you think, I'm like, all right, I've had enough. I'm ready to just, you know, live an easier life. Uh, at 37 years old, I woke up in the middle of the night struggling to breathe. And after about 11 days of having my lung drained of about a liter of fluid every other day at the ER and going to multiple hospitals for testing, uh, it turned out my heart was on the verge of failing and my uh, kidneys were failing and my lung, of course, was collapsing. I was diagnosed with a very rare aggressive form of cancer. It's called acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So it's a blood cancer that attacks your organs and causes them to shut down. I was given one to three weeks to live if I didn't start chemotherapy immediately. I was very hesitant. I didn't want to do the chemotherapy uh, just because it's very hard on your body. Of course, it's poison and many people die from the chemo. Um, but the best holistic doctors in the country said that was my best shot of living. And so I decided to do it. And 
um, with a seven-year-old daughter at the time and a four-year-old son being told I had a only a 20 to 30% chance of, of, of living. Um, it was the hardest time in my life for sure. And uh, I, I started out feeling afraid. What if, what if I die? What if I leave my kids without a dad? And I very quickly realized that um, that fear is not serving me. And so I crafted affirmations. Step one, what am I committed to? I'm committed to beating cancer and living to be 100 plus years old alongside Ursula and the kids, no matter what, there is no other option. And I read that over and over and over with such conviction that it became my reality. And I literally just fear wasn't there anymore because I just repeated it so many times that I embodied it. I felt it. I believed it. I'm going to beat this cancer no matter what. There is no other option. Step two, why is it a must for me? I had five reasons. I'm committed to beating cancer for Ursula because I promised her forever and a day. I'm committed to beating cancer for Sophia and Halston, my kids, because they need their daddy's love, guidance, and leadership, and I want to watch them grow up. I'm committed to beating cancer for my mom and dad because they already lost one child and they don't deserve to lose another one. I'm committed to beating cancer for myself because I deserve to live a long, happy, healthy life. And last but not least, I am committed to beating cancer for the millions of people who are themselves battling cancer or some other disease and may not have been blessed with the knowledge and resources that I have. And I have a responsibility to heal so that I can help them heal on their journey. Those five reasons for me, Paula, were so compelling that when I felt like giving up, when I was so sick from chemo that I didn't want to keep going, when I was exhausted, I would read those and I was willing to continue. It got me to keep going one more day. And you can apply this formula to every goal in your life, every role in your life, everything that you want to change or improve or accomplish. And then step three, I just had a list of, okay, I will do chemotherapy, but I'm going to maintain the mindset that it is healing my cancer, but my body is strong enough to survive it. And I embodied that belief. And then I had a list of every holistic practice that I was committed to doing. I read books every day. I focused all six of the savers on the only goal that mattered to me at that point, which was to beat cancer and to survive. So every day I meditated in a state of complete healing. I read that affirmations formula every day. I visualized every cell in my body, which when you see a cancer cell under a microscope, it looks very different from a healthy cell. So I visualized healthy cells in my body. I visualized walking my daughter down the aisle so that I was embodying this belief that I was going to be around for a long, long, long time. I exercised every morning. I read books on natural, holistic ways to beat cancer. And I journaled every morning what I was grateful for, what I was committed to that day, my highest priority. And if there was anything stressful, which there was a lot, that I needed to make, be at peace with so that I could move forward throughout my day. And I really believe that, that my savers, my miracle morning saved my life because I was in remission within about two months, far sooner than the doctors thought I would be. I still had to undergo three years of chemotherapy, which we'll save that for the next episode because that was uh, another horrible ordeal. That was like the fifth uh, uh, situation. But uh, yeah, but I'm grateful to say that I'm alive. And uh, I really believe it's because of the miracle morning. 
You know, I, I posted on Twitter a photo of your book a couple of days ago and said that I'm reading it and that I'm going to talk to you in a, in a few days. Someone reached out, shout out to Eric at Eric Henson 71 and wanted me to ask you this question. Mm. Eric asks, does the Savers Regiment need to be in the morning in order to be effective? I love this question. Um, the answer is no and yes. Uh, and here's what I mean, because I get this question a lot, right? Like, can I do the Savers like at night after work or in the afternoon? Um, yes. These six practices will benefit you any time of day. The savers will benefit you whenever you do them. However, the benefits are both immediate and lasting, meaning when you meditate in the morning, you lower your cortisol levels. Therefore, you lower your stress. You create space for new ideas and clarity. You want those benefits first thing in the morning so that you can optimize your day. When you read your affirmations, you are directing your conscious mind toward what you are committed to, why it is a must for you, and which specific actions you are committed to taking today that will move you toward the outcomes that you're committed to. Again, you wait till the end of the day, you're missing out on that clarity and those reminders being top of mind first thing in the morning. In the book, I teach a very unique, or I don't know if it's unique, but it's not taught usually when it comes to visualization, not just visualizing the end result, like, you know, crossing the finish line, winning the championship, whatever. I teach you how to visualize yourself performing at your best today, whether it's for your family, whether it's at work, whether it's for yourself. I teach you how to visualize, essentially mentally rehearse yourself performing at your best today so that when it's time to actually step into the office, engage with your spouse or your kids, or you know, open up your computer and get to work, you've already gone there in your mind and your body and your spirit, so you are far more effective throughout the day. Exercise. Robin Sharma in the Miracle Morning movie, there's a documentary that features many people. Robin Sharma is one of them. He says that the benefits of exercise have been proven to last for 13 hours after the initial exercise, right? So you actually generate energy in your body that benefits you throughout the day. You don't want to miss out on that. When you read something in the morning, you gain ideas that you can apply during the day. And then last but not least is scribing. If you journal using the technique that I teach, right? One of those techniques is looking at your to-do list and clarifying what's the number one thing I'm going to do today. And is there anything I need to let go of today that I'm stressed about, right? All of the benefits of the savers, doing them in the morning is crucial so you can show up at your best every single day. Right. So ideally, if you do it in the morning, you have the benefits of it for the rest of the day. But yes. if you can't do it in the morning for any reason, then doing it at some point later in the day is better than not doing it at all. Absolutely. And there's two things. I've been asked for years, how do you have an evening ritual? And I was always kind of embarrassed because I'm like, not really. I just like kiss the kids and go to bed, you know? Um, but I started to realize in 2020, I went through a six month period of sleep deprivation. It was, I think it was from chemotherapy. I don't know for sure, but I've been on chemo for three years and I just stopped sleeping. My brain just kind of went out of whack. And um, after six months of sleep deprivation, I was a mess and I relentlessly researched how do I turn this around? And now when I speak, I always ask my audiences, how many of you have trouble with sleep? And it's over half of the hands that go up. And so 
I shared, I, there's a chapter in the book called The Miracle Evening where I share seven things I do, a seven-step evening ritual to prepare you for restful, I call it blissful bedtime, so you can go to sleep even if life is stressful. What do you do to let go of those things that are weighing on your mind at night so you can free yourself to actually just go to sleep feeling good so you can wake up feeling good? If there's one thing that you do in the evening that stands out, what uh, what is that? What's the top evening thing? Yeah, it's it's to flip the switch. And flipping the switch is to have, it starts just with an intellectual acknowledgement to go, okay, wait a minute. When I lay down to bed, not even just lay down to bed, like for the last you know hour in the evening as I'm winding down toward bed, my friend Michael Bruce, Dr. Michael Bruce is the sleep doctor. He calls it landing the plane. You've got to land the plane, right? You got to, you know, gradually land the plane. And so um, flipping the switch is acknowledging my only objective at bedtime is to prepare my mind and body for peaceful, restful sleep. Therefore, every thought and every action as I approach bedtime must be in alignment with my singular objective, which is to go to bed, to fall asleep. Here's the thing. If you just rely on your mind, the monkey mind, it can be very difficult. That's why I love affirmations, because you get to design the thinking that serves your highest good. And so the bedtime affirmations are before bed. It's you read these affirmations that remind you of, here's my singular objective. I'm going to let go of stressful thoughts. I'm going to replace them with grateful thoughts. I'm going to go to bed saying, thank you, God, for my life. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for this bed. Thank you for this pillow. I just fall asleep every night just feeling grateful for everything in my life. And I find that your last thought before you fall asleep is almost always your first thought in the morning. Or I should say your emotional state as you drift off to sleep is almost always the emotional state you wake up in. Go to bed stressed, wake up stressed. Go to bed grateful and peaceful and feeling safe in your bed, wake up feeling grateful and peaceful and ready to take on your day. Mm, That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, we will end it here. Are there any final thoughts that you want to share? I'd invite everybody to check out Miracle Morning, right? MiracleMorning.com. You can watch the movie for free. It's a, it's a documentary that has the morning routines of, you know, Mel Robbins and Robin Sharma and Brendan Burchard and Lewis Howes and world champion athletes like Layla Ali. And it has my cancer journey because I was diagnosed halfway through filming the documentary and my director just kept the cameras rolling. It's a really inspiring film that you can watch with your family. It's free, MiracleMorning.com. Uh, you can download the free Miracle Morning app. Uh, And then, of course, the new book, it's the Miracle Morning Updated and Expanded Edition. I wanted to make sure it really helped every person to start their day in an optimal way so that they can become, you know, the person that you need to be to create everything that you want for your life, uh, whatever that looks like for you. Thank you, Hal. What are three key takeaways that we got from this conversation? Key takeaway number one, regardless of what happens to us, the way that we feel about those experiences makes a massive difference in the way that we process what is happening in our life. Hal talks about some of the things that he has endured and discusses how 
the way that he perceives what's happening around him, even and especially the moments that are most painful, that choice that he has in how to perceive it gives him the ability to control what happens downstream within his life. Every painful emotion that we have ever experienced is self-created by our resistance to our reality. In other words, it's the degree that we wish or want something were different that is out of our control, past, present, or future, that creates the emotional pain. We've been conditioned to think we feel good only when good things happen, but we feel bad when bad things happen, and we're not really in control of how we feel. And what I realized in that moment is, no, we get to choose how we experience every moment of our life including the most difficult ones. I can't change that I was hit by a drunk driver, that I broke 11 bones, that I have permanent brain damage, and that I might spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, but I can choose to be the happiest and the most grateful I've ever been while I endure the most difficult time in my life. So that is the first key takeaway. Key takeaway number two, Hal emphasizes the crucial importance of personal development, because we can work on developing technical skills, right? We can get educated on accounting or investing, investment analysis, right? We can, we can learn all kinds of skills, but if we don't do the inner work of understanding ourselves, we will never experience the success that we're striving for, the success that we're capable of right? This applies, well, actually, we'll let him describe all of the arenas that it applies to. Jim Rohn said, your level of success, and I apply this to every area of life, your financial success, your health, your relationships, your mental health, you name it. So your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I quantified it immediately for whatever reason, just um, automatically I went, okay, what level of success do I want on a scale of one to 10? Well, level 10, I think that's human nature is we want to be as happy and healthy and wealthy and in love as we possibly can. Everybody, there's this innate desire and drive toward level 10, the best life can be. The next question was, well, if my level of success is not gonna exceed my level of personal development, I gotta ask myself, What's my level of personal development? As in, what am I doing every day to become the level 10 version of myself that is capable of creating and sustaining the level 10 success I want in my life? So key takeaway number two is the importance of personal development. It is not time away from work. It is, in fact, time spent facilitating your work. Finally, key takeaway number three, Hal talks about how he developed the savers routine, silence, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, and scribing or writing. He built this after researching the practices of the most successful people in the world. And he has found that spending an hour on these activities has been proven time and again to positively impact people's lives. These are known as the savers. This is the acronym for these six practices, S-A-V-E-R-S. That's silence, prayer, and or meditation. A is for affirmations. V is for visualization. 
E is for exercise. R is for reading. And the final S is for scribing, which is a fancy word for writing or journaling. And so after I did this practice for two months, I more than doubled my income. I went from being in the worst shape of my life to committing to train for a 52-mile ultra marathon because I hated running. And I thought, what better way to grow and evolve than to commit to do something that is so far outside of my comfort zone that I have to become a different version of myself to be able to do it. And last but not least, and maybe most importantly, my mental health did not take two months to improve. It improved on the very first day because I went from feeling hopeless to feeling that if I do this every day, if I start every day with these six practices and start the day with this much energy and clarity and motivation, it's only a matter of time before I become the person I need to be to turn my life around. And two months later, it worked. Now, if you don't have an hour in the morning, start with six minutes. Start with one minute per step and build from there. Something is better than nothing. And starting is often the hardest part. So start in the lowest friction manner possible and then expand from that point forward. Those are three key takeaways from this conversation with Hal Elrod, the creator of The Miracle Morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. And again, happy New Year's. You know, the new year is a natural, fresh start. And I've heard people criticize the idea at an intellectual level. It's, it's an academic exercise, right? People will sometimes say, well, what's so special about January 1st that couldn't be replicated on June 14 or September 8 or October 22. In theory, sure, any date is no different than any other date. But people are symbolic. Any new change, whether that's the turning of a calendar year, whether that's a birthday, any type of turning of the page, ending of one chapter and moving to the next chapter is a natural marker for renewed motivation. And that renewed motivation can, if harnessed properly, form the building blocks of habits. To quote James Clear, who is a former guest on this podcast and the author of the book, Atomic Habits, James Clear says, and I'm quoting, we don't rise to the level of our dreams. We fall to the level of our habits. We don't rise to the level of our dreams. We fall to the level of our habits. And what that means is that when we experience this rare burst of motivation, which often tends to happen only a couple of times a year, New Year's, birthdays, maybe a graduation or some other type of milestone event. When we get this annual, semi-annual burst of motivation, this is the moment to harness that into the formation of habits because it is those habits that will carry you through the next 366 days. It's a leap year. So decide which habits you want to gel this year. Choose one or two incredibly clear, incredibly specific ones. Create an environment that is conducive to the formation of habits. Eliminate friction. 
and make the pursuit of those habits your identity. By doing so, and by focusing on consistent action rather than on outcome, you can end this year in a far better place than you started it. For support and help, join the Afford Anything community. It's absolutely free. Affordanything.com slash community. There you will find like-minded people who are willing to support and encourage and, and cheer you on and offer advice every step of the way. Again, completely free. Affordanything.com slash community. Also, make sure that you're subscribed to our show notes. Affordanything.com slash show notes. We'll have some big announcements coming out this year, including an international trip, which we are planning with this with the Afford Anything community. Uh, we'll be making that announcement by email. So make sure that you're subscribed to the show notes, affordanything.com slash show notes. We're also thinking about rolling out a new course this year. In fact, I'd like your feedback on it before we uh, before we put the polished prototype together. So again, all of that we will communicate first via email and you can subscribe to our updates at affordanything.com slash show notes. So thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for being part of this community. I look forward to everything that we will accomplish together in the upcoming year. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything Podcast, and I'll catch you in the next episode.